Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. This is Matthew Castell at Hunter and Craft Radio, and I'm here today with Alan Gertner of Tokyo Smoke. And so I'm really excited today to chat with Alan uh, because Tokyo Smoke is a brand that's doing just about everything. So we're going to talk about uh, uh, medical marijuana, we're going to talk about fashion, we're going to talk about coffee, and so we're really going to get a good look at uh, this brand today with Alan. So Alan, great to see you today, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself uh, where you've been and uh, how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, so- sounds good. And thanks again for having me here today. I'm excited to be here and chat with you. So my story, I went to Western. I studied philosophy and then business. I had no idea really, really what I really wanted to do. But I thought you know, philosophy and business seemed like a good combo as I was classic, trying to figure classic. out my life. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was at least understanding why business was a bad idea. That was the two years of philosophy. So that was good. <laughs> Uh, all I wanted to do was move to New York after school, and so I was lucky to get a job at Oliver Wyman, and I went into Consult, consulting. Yeah, I went in to become a management consultant, and early on, I learned that I love the process of management consulting. I love that structure. I love the way people think, but I hated the products we worked on. I love process, hated the products. So can you give me an example of Yeah, sure. So I worked on, when I say product, I mean the content that we worked on. So I worked on a project for a chemical company, and they made plastic bottles. And they needed to hedge the input cost of an oil-based derivative for plastic bottles. (laughs) And so that was a six-month project in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee. And, you know, I didn't get that much joy out of improving the plastic bottle process. But I got a lot of joy out of the structure and rigor and academia that we brought to that kind of project. So you'd say you'd like the problem-solving aspect? I love the problem-solving aspect. Yeah, but I didn't like the content, the product. And so it was three years into consulting. I was living in New York and... You know, worth a bit of background. I went to computer camp as a kid. Like, I've loved computers forever. Okay. And Google.com slash jobs. I applied for a job <laughs> at Google. I was looking to try to be in corporate strategy somewhere to find a product that I loved right. that I could work on. And, yeah, I applied online, did my, you know, requisite 100 interviews or whatever I had to do to get that job. <laughs> I think it was, like, 12. I did 12 interviews. Come on, 12 interviews. Yeah. Wow. 12 interviews over the period of a month where, like, every single interview I was terrified. Is it still that process? No, they changed it now to four interviews. Okay. Uh, Google is really good around trying to understand what's important to ask and what's not important. But in its early days, it was, you know, just a bunch of nerds asking silly questions. Any crazy stuff that they do in certain interviews? Like, tough questions? Oh, yeah, for sure. Stuff stuff that people wouldn't sort of anticipate. They don't... They're not supposed to do this stuff anymore. But they used to ask ridiculous questions. So... I remember getting into an interview, and someone asked me, what is the size of the mortgage market in Romania? That was the question that I got. I was like, oh, what, really? The mortgage market in Romania? And honestly, I know Romania is a country, but I don't don't even know if they have mortgages in Romania. Uh, So you you get all kinds of silly, interesting questions, but because you have interesting people, it becomes a fun exercise. First question I got 
phone call to the guy who'd become my future boss. First thing, like, hey, his name was Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. And he's talking to him, and he says, I'm going to give you a million dollars, and uh, you have a year. Tell me what you're going to do with that million dollars. That was the first thing. Like, no real other discussion. Right. And I think that's why I got the job, to be honest. I just got back from Japan, and... In Japan, they give away little free tissue packs with ads wrapped around them okay. all over the street. Yeah. And so I decided I was going to start this business in New York doing the same thing, giving away tissue packs and having a little ad wrapped around them. Right. And I had worked this all out of my head, so I had this revenue model, and it's effectively a small-scale version of Google AdWords. You, it's oh, the same thing. So I'd explain this long model to him and how it was going to acquire tissues nice. and all of this stuff. And that, that's to, he reflects that's why I got the job because right. that was interesting, different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and worked at Google for six years, three years in California doing corporate strategy, and then three years in Singapore. I was in California. I wanted to change. I wanted to get a little closer to possession. Let's say I had process that I liked. I had a product I liked. But I didn't feel like I owned anything. I want to get close to the business, so I moved to Singapore to run our travel business for Asia. So wow. I could I could sort of own right. something. So that was like a leadership position. Exactly. Manager. I got to manage a team. I got to have a book of business. Wow. I had a revenue line. Went and did that for about three years. And then while I'm on the subject of peas, I didn't feel like I had enough passion in my right. job. You know, okay. I, I'd been there a long time. I'd been at Google longer than anything else in my entire life, and... I wanted to find something I'd be passionate about, and now so, I'm here. So was that sort of the main reason why you wanted to leave Google? And I know for, for a lot of people, Google's like this ideal place to work. And yeah. and so what for you, I mean, you mentioned passion. What, what for you is the sort of, I don't know, maybe it was a defining moment or a series of things that sort of made you want to do your own thing? Totally. totally. Good. It's a good question. Uh, so I have two thoughts. Uh, one, uh, I realized at some point that no matter how long I worked at Google, I was never going to own that company. <laughs> now, I know that sounds sort of silly, right? Yeah. But you, know, you set these goals as you grow to get promoted, to make more money, to manage more people, and those are very fulfilling up until a point where I thought, well, I don't need any more money. I don't need to manage any more people. Right. I don't really need any more power. I'm never going to own this place. Well, then what next? But then in terms of like a defining moment, so... I, in my last year at Google, I was lucky enough to get chosen for a project in Ghana, in Africa. Okay, wow. So I got to go do this project in Ghana, and Google was working on deploying fiber cables all over Ghana, because they want Ghanaians to use the internet more. Right. So I got to go work on this project for a month, which was so, so cool. Right? Were you on the ground? I was on the ground in Ghana, worked out of the Google Accra office. Oddly enough, we have an office in the capital of Ghana. And, and I was there for a month and got the chance to meet a lot of fascinating and interesting people. And you get that chance to break away from yeah. your regular life. Yeah. So I'm in Ghana and we get a tour of a small town and I'm talking to the tour guide. And we're talking about life. And I'm asking him how he ended up being a tour guide. And he said he grew up in a very small and poor town. And he became a tour guide because he wanted to make money so that he could give money to people in his small town right. so that they could grow up and have a better life than him. Okay. That was why he lived. He said, this to me is worth dying for. That was his purpose. That was his purpose. Yeah. He had this purpose that was worth dying for to him. And he asked me what my, my purpose was. <laughs> and I, I thought, shit. Like, uh, uh, to... Move up? To uh, make more money? Yeah. yeah. To, you know, to that other conversation, to... I, I don't know. I, I've been optimizing for winning at work, right? Right. I haven't been optimizing for 
making the community better, for making people's lives better, I've been trying to get promoted. And so I left that conversation. I thought about it for another week or two while I was in Ghana. And my first day back from Ghana, I quit Google. Wow. I worked for another month or two to be a good soldier, but, you know, that was it for me. I needed to find something that I was truly passionate about to find my purpose. Wow. Cool, cool. So... One last thing about Google before we yeah. move your current thing. So for people wanting to get a job in tech, you know, at a you know very well known company like Google, what would you say would be the top kind of things? I mean, you mentioned in another conversation that we've had uh, that uh, um, you know there are certain things that Google will look for, and so I was just sort of wondering what, what that be. You've given interviews. You also mentioned yeah. at Google, you know, hiring, and so what would that be? Do you think? It's good. It's a good question. Well, one on interviews, I love giving interviews. I know most people don't, but there's something about the dedicated and forced time that someone has to spend with me and listen to me and <laughs> me listen to them that I think is so amazing and rare in life. Yeah. We're rarely forced to really pay attention to each other. That's, that's an interesting point. Something so great about an interview. It's completely unacceptable for you to look at your phone during an interview. Right. Whereas, you, have, you have that one hour block or two or whatever it is. You're focused on one another. There's exactly. phones, nothing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I like that. So I, I, I love that moment. Okay, but that's an aside. <laughs> so what does Google look for? Well, first and foremost, get someone at Google to refer you. Right. That's the biggest difference. Yeah, mind your college networks. Mind your friend networks. Mind your work networks. Ask and try to find someone who works at Google who you can talk to. Mm-hmm. And if they refer you, Google will look at your resume. Right. Uh, how many applications? Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, how many applications do you think they get in a year? I think they get more than two million, right? <laughs> uh, I think they, it's a one in four hundred chance of uh-huh. getting a job at Google. Uh-huh. It's like it's not a good good odds. Good odds so yeah. anything you can do, and then once you get that interview, if if, uh, if it works out in your favor, be really excited about and passionate about being there, being in the interview, and wanting to work at Google. Right. You know, there's lots of people who want to work at Google for X, Y, and Z reason. Like I said, two million people. But there's something about being truly excited about the interview and truly excited about being there that's going to make a huge difference. The people we interview do lots and lots and lots of interviews. Right. And when they get to have that moment when you're excited to be there and you want to be there and you're passionate, that makes all the difference. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, that's cool. Uh, So anyway, moving on to what you're doing now. uh, You had that moment in Ghana. um, You came back. You quit your job at Google. And so what were the next steps for you? Where were you sort of, you know, what was the new direction that you wanted to to go in? Yeah, so I wasn't immediately sure what I wanted to do in terms of work. But I knew what I wanted to do in terms of self-reflection and growth. Okay. So I said to myself when I quit, it's really important for me to understand, let's say, what that purpose is or what I'm looking for in my life. And the conclusion I came to was that my life was not as meaningful as I wanted to be at Google. I was happy. Mm-hmm. I don't say my life was 8 out of 10 happiness. But my meaning was low. 3 out of 10. I didn't feel like I had that purpose. I, right. I worked at Google for 6 years. I'm going to quantify everything. Right. So, yeah. so my meaning wasn't where I wanted it to be. And so I set out to do a project to try to figure out what in my life would make it more meaningful. What levers could I pull? What things could I do differently? So I created a little website for myself called TimeOn. TimeOn.org. Okay. I always thought that when people took time off, it's so weird that we call it time off. Why is that off time? That's the chance for me to be me. That's my time on. So I started this little project and I 
decided I would do an effort to understand my quantified self. What if I measured everything I did every single day? Everything. Everything, okay. yeah. How much money I spent and where I spent it, who I met, what the weather was like, what time I got up, what time I went to bed. you even spent with people? The time I spent with wow. people, what we talked about. Right. I captured those all in a big, huge spreadsheet. I thought, maybe I'll learn a little bit about what makes my life more meaningful. And I asked myself questions in the morning and at the end of every day about how I felt. And you'd write this all down. And I wrote it all down. Cool. And then I'd also reflect in sort of diary style on my website, timeon.org, right. what was going through my head. So I started this project. And underlying all that project, I said to myself, I'm going to go out and do a bunch of stuff I've really wanted to do forever. Right. So I went to Japan and went skiing for most of the winter. And meanwhile, trying to reflect, trying to what, understand what, sorry, why Japan? Yeah. Why Japan? So I lived in Singapore for three years, so right. I'm already in Asia. Okay. And Japan has most of the snowiest places in the world. Okay, yeah. Enough. And you love skiing. And I love skiing. Okay. I grew up skiing. I'm Canadian. And but, I was a terrible hockey player. So, <laughs> you know, I had to ski. I was such a bad hockey player as a kid. Uh, my mom sewed a pillow into, like, my pants because I kept falling <laughs> on my butt. So I feel like that was the end of my right. hockey playing forever. So, so skiing took you to Japan. Skiing took me to Japan. And this is all while you were doing that... Uh, time on. Time on, exactly. Yeah, quantified self. Okay. And so as I started to reflect on all of this stuff, it became really clear to me that the days when I was working towards something, and the days when I set myself a goal, the days when I focused on growth, I was really a lot more satisfied. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a little obvious, but it was really important to me to write that kind of stuff down and to be able to reinforce that feeling that I really wanted to focus on building and growing something. Yeah. So, so would you give that advice to other people who may, you know, find themselves in jobs or I don't know, even lifestyles that they're not convinced that there's a lot of meaning there? Would you say that that was a great exercise, you know, for them maybe, or for, for you, like just to sort of write things down and think deeply or. Yeah, I think it's think. incredibly important. Yeah. I mean, there's no shortage of studies that say even a basic reflection at the end of the day will have a meaningful impact on mm -hmm. your happiness. Cool. And so that was really, really useful for me. And so what did you sort of learn? Like, what was the next sort of, okay, I've done this quantification. Yeah. Like, where are we going from here? Kind of yeah, so other than learning that meditation every morning was really good for me, <laughs> you know, it was important to turn that into something yeah. useful, right? Turn that into something that was maybe going to give me a little more direction. Yeah. And so with that data in hand and a better understanding of what was fulfilling to me, you know, I started to talk to my father, my friends about stuff that I could do. And I also had now this data and reflection around stuff that I loved, right? Mm -hmm. When I would spend my day thinking about coffee, right? I love coffee. Right. And when I had my cup of coffee and had chats with friends over coffee, that had a meaningful impact on my day. I would love, those, I would love those days, yeah. right? Those are the types of insights that you get. Okay, so now I'm understanding. Right. Yeah, so you, you really are able to have at your fingertips the things that you think about most in a day. The exactly. People that you like to spend the most time with in a day. For okay. sure. Where yeah, I'm yeah. spending time with. Right, them, exactly. Right? Uh, and what kind of joy I'm deriving from that. And so, you know, it was pretty easy for me to think of all those things. And so I thought about coffee. I love, I love coffee, like endlessly. And when I thought about the other things that are important parts of my life, we've talked about this a bit. And I wanted to try to weave those things together. And I found myself in that place, and I talked to my father and reflected on all the stuff my, my family has worked on and tried to think of ways I could do something in that space. Okay. And so, you know, not to gloss over it too much, but that's sort of how I find myself where I am today. 
uh, is trying to put together a lot of the passions that I have, that I think other people have, and weave them together in a way that creates a unique brand. Mm-hmm. And so that's Tokyo Smoke. Yeah, it is. So, you know, I, okay, so as a quick break, I love nerds, right? Like, I love, love nerds. And I love subject matter experts more than anything else right. in the world. Right? There's something so great about someone who loves something so deeply and knows everything about it. Everything. Right? Like, I love sneakerheads, right? Guys who know everything about sneakers, all the cool <laughs> sneakers, their history of sneakers. Right. Great. The only thing I love more than that is, like, multidisciplinary nerds. Right? A sneakerhead who also is in love with space travel. Right? <laughs> the best. Because that's the kind of guy who's probably going to design the best sneakers in the future. Right. Right? Because he's going to merge these two areas yeah. and come up with these nonlinear thoughts about how to make the best sneakers. And if I reflect on myself, and my, my grandfather had a women's clothing company. Okay. So I grew up forever with his factory at King and Spadina. And my father worked in the fashion industry. And then my father, for the last 20 years has been working in the medical marijuana space. Okay. okay, so here's this love of fashion that's deep in my roots and uh, tons of energy and interest and excitement around medical marijuana where that space is going. And then, you know, my love of coffee. And okay, well, can I, can I weave those things together? What if I take my knowledge of those three spaces right. and try to create something new? What if I try to use my interdisciplinary knowledge? And that's very much where Tokyo Smoke comes from. Now, how can I build on that? What can we create that's new and interesting and different right. based on those? Weaving together your passion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The things that make me the m- most happy. Yeah. So you've got the brand, sort of a loose idea of what it is. I guess the way I understand it is sort of an umbrella where you can package in your passion. Very right, much. And test different things. And so what are the types of things that you're testing right now? What are the sort of, uh, I guess you could say... Um, themes under Tokyo Smoke right now. Yeah, You yeah. mentioned medical marijuana, coffee, fashion, but you want to talk a little bit more about Yeah. So I'm interested in doing anything that's uh, highly engaging and highly addictive. And legal. <laughs> yeah, I should say legal is important. Right. Uh, so all things in that world are, are up for grabs for us. I want to develop a brand that means something to people. And so we're starting with coffee. So we have one coffee shop right now open on Adelaide between Stafford and Strawn in Toronto. And we'll have a second one at Bloor and Palmerston very soon. Oh, cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah, so we're, right. we're, we're getting moving great, on them. Great. And that's our outlet to the world, right? And we're going to have these little coffee shops that are unique and different experiences. Is the is the Bloor location uh, going to be a little bit different than, than this location so, here? Totally different. So really? our location on uh, Adelaide is called Tokyo Smoke Found. It's about found items and curation. Uh, okay. So it's a little museum in there. Right. Our location on Bloor is going to be called Tokyo Smoke Make. It's going to be a makerspace for people who want to create stuff. We have a nice. 3D printer in there. Oh, We're yeah. We're going to have a like bike it. repair in the basement. It's going to be a very different feel. I mean, it will still fall under the banner of our brand. It will still be an accessible luxury space and luxury experience. But I recognize there's all kinds of people out there in the world who want to engage in our brand in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I want to provide a platform for that. Cool. Uh, that can fit under our brand because, like you said, we can have an umbrella. Absolutely. Uh, we have a clothing line. So our clothing line is sold in more than 30 stores for fall. Okay. And just little stores. We're a small line. Nice. So how, how would you describe your clothing line? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a, it's a lot of basics right now. Okay. 
uh, blacks, blues, grays, whites. And uh, I'm actually looking at it right now, and I must say that it's quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, we're getting there. We want to just enter the space, and part right. of entering the space is is just having a couple things. We have basically five outfits, and those five outfits can be intermatched anyway. The tops, the jackets, the pants. Mm-hmm. Creating something that's unique, timeless, classic. We're not really breaking any fashion boundaries right now, but we're creating a line that is, I'll go back to affordable luxury, something that anyone okay. could really wear is, is ageless. Cool. And something I'll wear that you could wear, that my father could wear, and we'll go from there. And where, where are you guys uh, like manufacturing it? Are you doing it locally, or what are you thinking? So right now, we're working with a partner in Montreal. So okay. our Tokyo Smoke brand is going to have leaders in each of the verticals. Mm-hmm. And so we're working with a company that's been uh, manufacturing and producing clothes uh, in Montreal, but also using manufacturers abroad to create clothes for right. forever. Yeah. And there are lead and partner on the clothing line and we're so lucky to work with a team of people who are equally excited about Tokyo Smoke as we are. And so you mentioned that uh, you work with partners who are leads in the different verticals. I was wondering if, you know, your perception on management, running a business, you know, what's your style? Is it to give leadership, you know, to people who are uh, expert nerds, so to speak, in their areas or what, how do you see sort of a, a company uh, being run successfully, what's your sort of principle there? Yeah, um, I think that we are really lucky as people to all be really different and have different strengths mm-hmm. and weaknesses. And I recognize in myself when I first started working, I had a very poor appreciation for the fact that people who didn't operate like me could be just as good or better than me. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. When you first start working, especially when you're in your early twenties. You're just focused on getting shit done and hopefully that you you think you're really great, right? <laughs> uh, and it was an amazing learning to me, especially at Google, when you meet these people who are so uniquely talented in certain ways and so deficient in other ways. Yeah. Yeah. And as I got to work with more and more of those people, I started to appreciate more and started to really love the fact that a great team can do things way beyond any individual. Right. And so all I res- aspire to do is build a great team where people feel like they have the, the right to do great things and to engage in a way that is effective for them. And I'll, right. I'll go back to Daniel Pink. So Daniel Pink has written a lot about motivation in the workplace. Right. And so he says motivation is mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Right? Can, do you have the opportunity to master your task? Do you have the op- autonomy you need to operate on your own? And do you have a purpose, a goal that you're working right. towards? I want everyone I work with, uh, everyone I work for, everyone who works for me to feel like they have the right motivation. Right. That's the kind of leadership style I want to employ. So I would love nothing more than the person who runs the clothing line to feel like it's their clothing line mm-hmm. as much as I feel like it's my clothing line. <laughs> Absolutely. I, it's the same with the coffee shop. We're so lucky to have baristas who like being there and are part of our family. And I want them to be encouraged to do great things whether I'm there or not. Yeah. It's oh, part of why I'm going away on Friday for a month. <laughs> Very cool. So we heard a little bit about the coffee, heard a little bit about the fashion. So yeah. what's this whole medical marijuana thing? Yeah, it's a, it, it's, it's a new space for us. It's a new space for everybody. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think that if I look at marijuana, uh, I observe that there's not a lot of great brands in it. Maybe there's no great brands in marijuana right now. Right. 
we somehow still smoke stuff called strawberry cheesecake. Like, that sounds like it's been named like a 13-year-old boy. Right. Despite the fact that cannabis is expensive, uh-huh. uh, and despite the fact that it's so experiential. Like, what's strawberry cheesecake? Is that supposed to make me feel good? I don't even know what that really is. <laughs> uh, and so as Tokyo Smoke, we wanted to create brands that mean something to people. Mm-hmm. That's aspirational, that's luxurious, and that could exist in marijuana. So let me give you an example. So there are a couple different broad types of marijuana. One of them is a sativa. Okay. So a sativa is the kind of marijuana that makes you feel good, happy, up, excited. You know, there's indica. That's the kind of marijuana that you're like on the couch and your eyes are closed. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say there's those two big buckets. Well, those aren't particularly great consumer names either. No. Um, so we have Tokyo Smoke Go. So Tokyo Smoke Go is our brand for sativa. Okay. Right? So go is a feeling. That's something consumers can understand. We have beautiful packaging, beautiful luxurious packaging that is for sativa. Right. And then indica, again, we'd have a brand and a feeling for indica. Same with for a hybrid, same with for a CBD. Right. So that's what I want to build with Tokyo Smoke and the medical marijuana space. We want to be part of making that product more luxurious and also more accessible. Right. Very cool. Okay. So uh, what's sort of next step? So I guess you're building, you know, each one of these separate lines, you know, themes out, I guess, as I was saying before. And, and where would you like, what's success for you in, for Tokyo Smoke? Uh, where, would, where, do you, where would you like to be in an ideal world yeah. as, you, as you build meaning and purpose for yourself? Kind of thing? Yeah, that, that's funny. That was going to be my answer. Like all I want really for me is to continue to work on something that I feel passionate about and that yeah. makes a difference to people's lives. Yeah. The best part about that coffee shop is that when I sit in there and work in that space, People seem to be so delighted by being in there and visiting us. Right. And that's an amazing thing for me. It doesn't mean I don't want to make money. It doesn't mean I don't have targets around making money. And it doesn't mean, you know, I don't aspire to some kind of world domination. (laughs) Of course. Right? But, like, all I really want is to delight people. Yeah. That's all I really want. I'd like to delight people at scale. If I had to give you a a tagline, that's really what I want. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's that's my future. I want to build Tokyo Smoke in a way that can be delightful. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So another question, uh, sort of along these same lines, I guess, what's working for you and where you want Tokyo Smoke to go, the impact you want to make, how would that translate into tips for other entrepreneurs or other people who want to start their own thing? Uh, what sort of crucial sort of, yeah, I guess tips or advice would yeah. you give them based on... You know, I, I know your things early and it's new, but at the same time, you know, I'm sure that you've learned a lot of things through your experiences at Google, you know, and then seeing young, this young business that you have now, For sure. um, types of advice you might have. So the most important thing to me that I've realized that I'm still working on every single day is managing my own energy. One thing that's so great about working at a big company is there's so much structure and infrastructure in place mm-hmm. to allow you to get a lot done with a lot of leverage for lack of a better business word right you can plan these big lofty goals and you need to help all those these other people come up the mountain with you but you can push a big boulder with 25 people true yeah. right with one person i'm liable to get crushed by that boulder always <laughs> but the problem is i've been working at a big company so i think of these big huge boulders and try to think about moving these big huge boulders right and then it's just me and i'm like hopping and popping as i'm trying to push this boulder up the mountain <laughs> 
And so managing my own energy so that I get up in the morning and I'm excited about work and I go to bed feel like, feeling like I've accomplished a lot of things, that I've made some progress, that's been a journey. Right. It's a big, it's a big change. Mm-hmm. And I have to have more patience with myself and with the business that, yes, we can be more nimble because it's just me. Mm-hmm. It's just me and our burgeoning team. But some stuff's going to take a little more time. Right. And I have to be okay with that. So it's about being realistic, about managing expectations, being used to working on your own. It, it's about uh, not always constantly exhausting myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> for me, I'll work all the time. You know, yeah. Because I want to get to that end goal. That is life. Right? Yeah. It's working all the time. Working all the time. Yeah. yeah. And I'll do that. But you know, you can only work all the time, every day, so many days before... I think you're less effective. I know you're less effective. Right. Uh, you need to build in breaks. You need to build in that time to take a deep breath. So on the topic of breaks, what to you is, how do you, how you, how do you manage work-life balance? How, yeah. how is that concept, what does it mean to you? What's important to you? I know just recently, uh, the last time I talked to you, uh, you were planning a trip. Yeah. Um, you know, travel, why is that important? How does that play into the work-life balance stuff? Now, so I'm obsessed with this idea of, having built-in escapes in your life, right? Okay. The opportunity to, to take real, meaningful breaks. And there's ways to do that at a micro scale, right? And there's ways to do that at a big, huge macro scale. So at a micro scale, I need time to meditate every morning. Every morning, 15 minutes of meditation. That happens every day. 15 minutes? 15 minutes, okay. yeah. Uh, it's a habit I've built and I've been lucky to keep going for a while. And I need that break. That's part of my work-life balance. Right. That's has to happen. Daily escape, so to speak. It's my daily yeah. escape, yeah. Not to mention making sure I take a actual lunch break. <laughs> and ideally that lunch break is outside. Almost all the time for me right. it's outside. I go for yeah. a walk and I take a break. It's yeah. amazing how air can have this rejuvenating... I've been realizing that lately myself, actually. For sure. When I'm cooped up in a place working you know, for hours on end, I start, anxiety starts coming and I realize that it's actually just because I'm not even breathing for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll completely agree. Yeah. I think that's why, like, anytime I go to Las Vegas after two days there, I'm like, holy shit, I need to get out of this place. Because <laughs> you just basically only breathe contained air right. for yeah. 48 hours straight yeah. and then I think my mind is just overwhelmed and I need to leave. Uh, no, I think that's so important. I, as a silly uh, anecdote, I remember... Being at Google, and Google's got a lot of quirky folks, and seeing all these engineers who walk around without shoes on, just barefoot, like barefoot everywhere, all around the office, you know, <laughs> outside, you're in the washroom, and you're sort of thinking, is that guy not got shoes on? <laughs> but there's something so great about your feet connecting with the ground. Yeah, I've heard right? that. There's something yeah. so restorative about that. So you get a chance to take real breaks during the day, even if they're not long, to build them in and make sure I dedicate that time to mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. to manage my energy. And then in terms of <clears throat> my upcoming trip, I am going to, for the rest of my life, continue to make sure I grow in ways that are beyond work. That's important to me. That's why I'm going to be so good at my job, is I'm going to continue to build other disciplines that I love and that I understand. And I can't do that if I have a myopic focus. It's just mm-hmm. not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So I need to have time to go and explore those things. Totally. So January and February, I spent skiing in Japan, and I worked as a backcountry tour guide. So I gave people like ski lessons, not even lessons. I 
I took people into the trees, into the forests in Japan, yeah. and we skied off piste. <laughs> and the chance to do that, to do something that was so different than the rest of Your my normal life. normal routine and everything. Yeah. yeah, was amazing. I learned so much more about snow, about people, yeah. uh, about Japan. That's really helpful for me in some ways every single day. Yeah. And so, my new trip coming up on Friday, I'm driving from London to Mongolia. <laughs> uh, Why Mongolia? Yeah, because uh, it's far, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it's the least... Uh, dense country in the entire world so okay. why not go somewhere that's so different from my life and the chance to go visit all these countries that are so far off my radar that are so far off everyone's radar right. that there's a good chance I'll learn stuff that other people don't know or I'll learn stuff that other people might know but people like me won't know yeah totally and that's going to be a great and interesting experiment for me not to mention I'm going to hopefully learn how to drive standard in a car and I don't know how to do that yet <laughs> no I, it'll probably bring you know an interesting unknown perspective when you get home. I find that when I travel, I come home and, and it influenced me in the most strange ways, you know, even my attention or, you know, my desire to do different things. There's always a bit of a, an X factor in terms of how traveling changes you, right? Completely agree. And the chance to take a break, right? Yeah. The minute I take a break from something, even if it's meditation, I found when I take even like a three minute break in the day, I'll immediately reflect and be so much more aware of everything that's gone on. Yeah. And travel does that at such a great big scale. I'll walk away on Friday and I'll be gone for the next month. And there'll be so many opportunities for me to think about what's happened for the past couple of months with Tokyo Smoke, where I want Tokyo Smoke to go. Right. That when at least I get to sort of pull my head out from the weeds yeah. and, and look into the distance... I can create such a more comprehensive and thoughtful vision, I think. Yeah. And that's something that travel gives me. It gives me that additional perspective, both about my life and about our business. That's a good way to put it. Cool. So uh, another question I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, some trends. You know, in Google, you're in tech, you know, and I'm sure you're not completely removed from that world. And I was sort of wondering what sort of trends you're sort of seeing in society that could be you know, with millennials as a group yeah. or, you know, just sort of directions that you think society may move in terms of culture and things like that. I mean, you're a lifestyle business, so I'm sure you pay attention to cultural trends and things like that. I was wondering if you could share a couple of those with us, if you, if you know any. Sure, I'd, I'd love to. So I worked in, tra- my last job at Google was in travel. Okay. And I think most people understand this, but to put a fine point on it, travel has changed tremendously and will continue to change in unbelievable ways and one thing that's indicative of that is airbnb is now already the largest hotelier in the world there are more room nights stayed with airbnb last year than any other without owning any properties without owning any properties (laughs) they are the biggest player in travel right and if you think about what that means it means that people want to have more customized more unique more local experiences than ever before Mm -hmm. you know marriott's have never really changed you know you stay at the marriott in toronto you stay at, not to pick on, on Marriott's, but you stay at Marriott in New York, they sort of feel the same. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a point where that was valuable, yeah. where all you wanted as a business traveler was to have the same. Mm-hmm. And I think now travelers, all they want is something local, something different, something that feels more like being in Toronto. You come to Toronto, wouldn't it be cooler to stay in Kensington Market than it would be to stay by the Sky Dome? Right. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, in some glass tower or something. Yeah. Exactly. Because that glass tower could be anywhere. Yeah. So that's a trend to me that's so fascinating. And as hotels, I think, change, 
hotels will become more customized. You, know, you can look at the W. Right. The W is a more engaging, immersive experience. It's cooler. It's got better cosmetics. It's a product that's more like being in a downtown cool part of a city. Mm-hmm. Right? And, they, and they've done it there more than just the room. It's the whole experience. I mean, the lounge to the restaurant. For sure. Exactly. So even the people they, they hire, I've even noticed at that point. I've stayed at a couple W's. Agreed. I think that's a great example. Yeah, right? or Ace Hotel. So they're opening an Ace Hotel in Toronto soon. Right. Yeah, I heard uh, that. Ace hotels are, for lack of a better way of putting it, hipster hotels. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. that's what they are. Right, and they'll hire a lot of people with mustaches, but they're, <laughs> you know, they're committed to being that lifestyle. Yeah, right. They're as much a lifestyle brand as they are a hotel brand. They sell really cool, interesting stuff. Hotels will move to be more customized. I think Airbnbs will move to be more standardized. Mm-hmm. It's still a problem if you go stay at an Airbnb and the towels are dirty. True, you're going to be upset. Yeah, right. And so I think both of those businesses will. Converge, and that will be a fascinating trend to me mm. and to see who does it first. So I'm very excited about that. And then the other one that's relevant to me right now is retail is changing massively. Yeah. Mm. So that, you know, the, the the death of the storefront kind of thing? Or well, is, so yeah. the death of the storefront I think is a little overblown okay. because consumers still want to engage with the physical world. Mm-hmm. All right? Warby Parker, a digital glasses business, has stores. Right. They built stores after they had websites. Yeah, I was in New York recently and they're just rammed with people. Yeah, rammed, right? stores. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the most, the second most profitable retailer in the United States wow. per square foot yeah. behind Apple. Right. It's, it's the story. Uh, because people want to go in there and touch glasses and put glasses on. Right. And you want to look at yourself in the mirror with your glasses on. Mm-hmm. But they don't sell glasses there, right? You go into that store, you put glasses on, and they will mail you a pair of glasses. Right. That's a right, showroom. Right, right, right. And I think what's happening with retail is more storefronts are now showrooms. Mm-hmm. They're showrooms in mini warehouses. Yeah. If I reflect on our little shop, Tokyo Smoke Found, we're a showroom. We're a showroom for museum-quality pieces. I noticed that. Uh, yeah, a lot of different sort of antique stuff, all kinds of things. Exactly. Yeah. We're building experience. You're going to come and have coffee in my store and not somewhere else because it's going to be a delightful sure. experience. Nothing right? I've noticed in that trend are people with uh, you know, storefront space having new material up all the time, even from local artists and things like that, you know, in that showroom vein. Yeah. yeah. No, I love that. Make the experience worth getting out of bed for because mm-hmm. online shopping is getting good enough that I can just order that online. Yeah. Right? But if the store is delightful, there's a reason for me to be there other than just buying that thing. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to come in. <laughs> and that's what is happening in retail. That's what's fascinating to me, yeah. right? Let's imagine this future where retail stores are all delightful. That would be so cool. <laughs> right? uh-uh. Walking into a you know a Gap, that's not that exciting an experience. I'll just order Gap clothes online. Yeah. But could it be a more exciting experience? That Frank and Oak has a great little coffee bar, right? This it, is Frank yeah. and Oak on Queen. Yeah. It's got a great little coffee bar. Or the barber shop. The barber shop. Into the clothing store. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like there's a lot of reasons for me to go into that store. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're an online business. They'd rather have me buy stuff online. Cool. Cool. No, those are really interesting trends. So, uh, gonna have to wrap up soon here, but uh, love to know, uh, you know, maybe four books okay. that you've read uh, that have sort of, I don't know, made an impact on your thinking, notable kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll start with my favorite book of all time. Uh, it's called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Okay. So, it's written in the 90s. Uh, David Foster Wallace was an American author, and it's, why do I love? Infinite Jest. I love it because it made me appreciate the humor in life. 
and the complexity this is, in a, this is a work of fiction. Yeah, it's a work of fiction. It's it's hard for me to pin it down. It's like fifteen hundred pages, okay. so it's a long book that touches many different subjects. But it's mostly about the life of people in the U.S. in the future, okay. and it's oh, a it's work a futuristic of, one. Nice. It's a futuristic like one. It's a work of satire. Okay, It'll give you a. But it's not like a dystopian kind of thing. Not like only so, Rainbow sort World of. Or 1984. No, it, it could be today, but it's the future. So in the future, time is subsidized. They were trying to figure out how they could make more money as a country, and so they allow brands to brand years, right? <laughs> so, right? So, yeah. you know, there, cool. there, there's lots of hilarity to it, but also life is very complex. And it's appreciating that despite the... Difficult times that come in your life, despite the joyous times that come in your life, just the journey itself is fascinating mm-hmm. and interesting. Cool. And I love that. The book really changed my life in appreciating how great everything about life can be, even in the worst moments. Worst times, yeah. Yeah. Cool. It, it's really worth reading. I, I, I'm so committed to it that when I left Google, I gave you know, a lot of the folks I love a 1,500-page book. So <laughs> Parting gift. Uh, yes, yeah, parting gift. Here's this big paperweight. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's my favorite. Uh, in terms of other books that had have had a big impact on me, I love love and I talked about meditation a little bit. I love Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, he's a Vietnamese monk, and he has a book called The Miracle of Mindfulness. Cool. And it's not a particularly long book. It's not fifteen hundred pages. It's pretty short relative, <laughs> yeah. and it says that you should take everything in life as an opportunity to be aware. Mm-hmm. Right. I, like I talked that. about this a little bit before. I think that's particularly relevant in this age uh, where technology in terms of social connectivity and everything is like, you know, making us attached to our cell phones, for example. But yeah. That's why I love interviews. Back to that, right? Yeah, that's exactly. one of those few moments where awareness is forced, up, forced upon both of us, yeah. right? But like this moment here. Yeah. We get this chance to engage in a level that we might not otherwise because it's like I'm answering someone's text messages and you're playing Angry Birds. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we get to engage now and I think taking the opportunity to be aware is so important to me and something that I wish everyone could appreciate in their own way so while, we, while we're ticking through books I really love I worked at Google for six years I love data and a book that changed the way I understand data my appreciation for it and what it can do is so this guy Edward Tuft he's I don't know maybe one of the foremost thinkers in data visualization. So he has this book called the, it's a mouthful, the visual display of quantitative information. Okay. Okay. So it goes through all of these great displays of information and some terrible displays and talks about why they're great and talks about why they're terrible. Nice. And it taught me that there's this idea maybe of cognitive art that you can have this like mentally difficult concept and display it in this beautiful, artful, interesting way. And make it simple. Huh. Uh, there's something I love so much about that, uh, about sharing information in an artful way that was astounding to me when I read the book, and this had a huge impact on my ability to tell stories. Right. Because so much of storytelling can be done, I think, through data. Absolutely. Uh, and then to round it all out, to my point around interdisciplinary knowledge, uh, I remember a long time ago reading this book called Mr. Nice. So Mr. Nice is about this guy, Howard Marks, his autobiography. 
He fascinating guy, Howard Marks. Yeah, He's Welsh guy, right? Yeah. Uh, went one to Oxford. Best, one of the best investors of all time. Oh, this is different, Howard Marks. Yeah, this is Howard Marks, uh, the world's biggest cannabis dealer. Oh, yeah, it's a different, same name. Yeah. Right? Okay. So Howard Marks, Mr. Nice, was Oxford educated and became a little bit through happenstance, a little bit through choice, okay. the biggest weed dealer in the entire world. <laughs> uh, okay. And his like crazy wild journey. Wow. And it taught me a lot about, you know, I read this a bunch of years ago. It taught me a lot about how people's brain power can be expended and used in incredibly interesting ways. <laughs> right? He was this really smart guy who decided he was going to be a drug dealer and became the world's largest drug dealer. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be a drug dealer, but if I think about all of these opportunities in the world to do great things, if I'm an entrepreneur, think about, you know, bringing anyone up. Bring your intelligence to a space where there hasn't been a lot of intelligence applied. There are crazy ways we can all make money and make a difference. Mm -hmm. And that was an exciting book for me to read at the time. Nice. Yeah. Well, great point to end on. So, uh, Alan, you know, that's a wrap. It was great chatting with you. And uh, everybody, be sure to go check out tokyosmoke.com and stop by the coffee shop and uh, say hi to Alan. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate this. And uh, please, everyone, stop. Mm -hmm.